0: All right, good morning, Story Church. How are we doing today? It's good to see you guys. Uh, Welcome to the Story here in the Museum District. I also want to give a shout-out to our Timber Grove family over in the Heights. We love you guys. Let's say hi to our Timber Grove family. Woo! All right. We love you, Timber Grove guys. Shout-out to Pastor Kale over there. And, uh, you know, I've been away for the last couple of of weeks. My family and I took a little breather after an extended, uh, intense uh, season. And, And, man, we had four different preachers on our team step in. And uh, two here at Museum District, two at Timber Grove that stepped in and just crushed it. And that's not even counting. We've got like two or three other like brilliant young preachers that are, that are all like half my age and better than me. And so I'm not threatened by that yet. But <laughs> it's, it's an incredible team. I'm actually not not threatened at all. It is like the joy of my life to pour into these Uh, young men and women and and watch them flourish and grow and so I'm really excited about what happened over the last two uh, Sundays. Now if you're new here or at Timber Grove or if you're joining us online maybe for the first time, um, I just want to say thank you. I hope you find the story to be uh, a welcoming and warm place. Whether you agree with everything you hear today or not, it's not really what it's about but we have always set out to be a church where folks with questions and doubts about religion and Jesus and God and the Bible and preachers and everything, like, like your, your questions are met and, and are honored and are respected and wrestled with in pursuit of the truth. So um, I'm really happy that you're here today if, if this is like your first time, especially. You've got study guides that you were given uh, when you came in. Those will be helpful to you. I'll mention them more throughout this message. Um, first, I'll just touch base about what everyone I'm sure has been spending every waking hour doing, and that is watching the World Cup. How many World Cup fans do we have in the house today? Seven or eight? All go. Right. This is Houston, lest we forget. All right, so I expected that, but I also want to tell you, I have been all in with the World Cup this year. I can't look away. I love watching the World Cup. I don't know why, but it's just something about the every four years component of it. Like when you get into your 40s, you start counting things. And not to be morbid, you start doing the math. How many more of these do I have left? You know, it's like, i want to enjoy, I know. Everybody went, ooh. Like, okay, but that's reality, okay? And I'm just trying to enjoy every moment of this, of this World Cup. And there's something about it that I love. I love, you know, the, the, the international competition. I love the pageantry and all of it. Now, there's just one tiny, tiny problem. For me in the World Cup, as much as I love the pageantry and patriotism of this international every four years competition, I absolutely hate soccer. Like, I just do. (laughs) That's not an exaggeration. I know I'm not supposed to say it because some of you are, that's like your religion is like soccer. And especially young adults love soccer. And I'm not supposed to alienate young adults from church because they hardly ever go to church anyway. And I'm making it more difficult by bashing your favorite sport. But I just find the sport of soccer absolutely brutal to watch. All right, so it's brutal to be a fan, and it always has been, but even more so now, I think. I just, and I'll share a couple of reasons why. It's basically this. I never know what's real in soccer. I don't don't know if what I'm seeing is real or not real. And so my wife, who's a Latina, she's all about soccer. It's the only sport I've ever seen her enjoy in 23 years of marriage, but she loves soccer. She's all in. And so when we're watching these matches together, something will happen, and I'll be like, wait, is this real or is it not real? For example, when a player gets tripped by a blade of grass and then he falls on the ground and writhes in agony as though he's at death's door, I'm like, Gio, you got to help me out here. Is this real? Is this man dying? Or is he just, you know, burning the clock? Because another stupid thing about soccer is the clock never stops. And so they just keep running the clock at the end of the match. Everybody's like, hey, ref, how much time did we waste when we didn't stop the clock? And ref's like, about seven, eight minutes. And then they just play another seven or eight minutes. It's very arbitrary and random. It's maddening. I'm a little frustrated about it. But then, but then you know, you play on. And, and, you know, you wait for someone to score. Which hardly ever happens. <laughs> in the great game of soccer. I did the math, this is true. Uh, As of Friday afternoon, I didn't calculate yesterday's games, matches, sorry, matches. I didn't calculate yesterday's matches, but as of Friday afternoon, on average, one goal in this World Cup had been scored every 43 minutes of play. And it occurred to me this week, if I wanted to watch someone struggle for 43 minutes to make a single point, I'd go back and watch my old sermons Amen. Hallelujah. Okay. <laughs> so it's very frustrating, is all I'm saying. And it's more frustrating now than ever because the World Cup, FIFA, in all of their integrity, have set up a system of video reviews so that even when a goal is scored, you don't know if you should celebrate or not because half the goals get canceled because some guy's shoelace is offsides and no one knows what offsides mean. Just take our word for it. Video reviews cancel out half the goals. So you have to wait to celebrate. Geo, Geo, is this real or is this not real? Do they really score or they not score? It's so frustrating to give your heart and your soul and your time to something that you don't even know if what you're seeing and celebrating is, is real or not. And, of course, you probably, some of you see exactly where I'm going with this. It occurred to me as I was watching Frustrated, the World Cup this week, that how I feel about soccer is how most people probably feel about Christianity in church. And the stuff we talk about, the stuff we see and celebrate and claim. Like, how do you really know if what you're celebrating and seeing is real or not real? And I think that's one of the factors that keeps so many away or keeps many uh, people keeping Christianity at arm's length. And so the, the question must be asked, when it comes to Christianity, how can we know what's real? Because Christianity asks a lot of us, if you're a Christian your whole life, living biblically will require you to make sacrifices and give your time and treasure and you invest so much of your money and your heart into this thing. And no one wants to do that for a lie. And so how do we know? How do we know what's true, what's real, and what's not? So that's what we're talking about today. And not only today, but for the next 22 weeks. This is our longest Message series ever. So I hope you like it. Dig in. 22 weeks starting today with this journey of a series called A Physician and the Facts. A Physician and the Facts Luke's Pursuit of the Truth. So from now through two Sundays after Easter, we're going to be following along with this man and his writings. His name was Luke. He wrote two books of the New Testament. The Gospel of Luke is the one we're going to be studying first, if you like it, after these 22 weeks. Maybe we'll spend another 22 weeks on Acts, the other book of the New Testament that he wrote. We'll cross that bridge when we get to it. But what we're looking for is uh, tr- evidence or proof of that what the Christians claimed to see and experience about Jesus was, was real and cannot be canceled by video review or anything else. So not only are we having these messages on Sundays, but we're fleshing this out a little bit more and giving you a daily reading guide. So you see it on the back of your study guides that I mentioned earlier. It's also in, if those of you here in person uh, and at Timber Grove in person, on, in the chair backs, there should be a uh, bookmark uh, that has the reading guide on it. Would someone in the room do me a favor and just hold it up high? That's the bookmark. And you're welcome to take that home with you. And every day, every Monday through Friday, you get Saturday off, and then we'll come together on Sundays and hear a message about part of Luke. Monday through Friday, we'll be reading on the same page together and reflecting in our own prayer life and journaling and all of that about what this passage speaks to us. We're going to read every word of Luke together over the next uh, 22 weeks. All right? So this is something unlike anything we've ever done before. I hope to do more of this in the future. These 22 messages we're going to hear are going to be broken down into five volumes. So it's not always exactly the same theme. We've broken Luke down into five sort of sections. And the first section or volume is based on Mary's question to the angel when the angel told her she would be bearing and delivering and raising the most important child ever born. And she said, how can it be? How can it be? This is the first volume. And today is part one of volume one. And I'm glad that you're here to be a part of it, all right? So the reason we chose Luke as opposed to any of the other authors of the New Testament is because Luke's approach is a perfect fit for the story's culture. The story has always tried, at least, to be a community for people who really want the truth but aren't sure about it, folks that don't have all the same assumptions as super-religious people have. And that's why Luke's approach is so spot on for us because Luke is different than every other author of the New Testament in some really important ways. First of all, I mentioned that he wrote Luke and Acts before. If you combine Luke and Acts, as they really should be combined, they're a prequel-sequel relationship, you would see that Luke wrote 28% of the content in the New Testament. One guy. There's 27 books in the New Testament. He wrote two books but those two books account for 28 percent of the content. It's pretty big. So if you're trying to figure out what to believe about the New Testament, about Jesus and Christianity, it's a pretty good place to start because he wrote a significant portion of it, all right? Not only that, but before he put pen to parchment, let's say, he uh, spent several years apprenticing and partnering with and serving the Apostle Paul. We have plenty of evidence to uh, to this point that Luke was Paul's right-hand man through all of Paul's dangerous journeys and arrests and persecutions and, and all the way through. Luke was there with Paul, for example, in the uh, Mamertine prison in Rome, uh, which is, still stands to this day. Uh, some of you may have visited it if you've ever been to Rome. I haven't yet. I hope to. It's on my list. But the Mamertine prison is, uh, is the cell in which Paul spent his last days. And uh, he didn't spend those last days alone, as we'll see uh, in today's um, readings. But that's the cell where Paul spent his final days before the emperor Nero uh, ordered his execution by beheading. So uh, Luke stood by Paul through it all. That tells us something about this man who we're going to be with for the next 22 weeks. Now, not only that, but uh, Luke is the only biblical author who was not Jewish. And that doesn't really mean much, except for the fact that Luke's perspective was slightly different. Luke, like many of you with Christianity, Luke went after the faith with very different assumptions, very different upbringing, very different past. And so that comes out in his writing in ways that uh, the other gospel writers don't quite reflect. So, um, So we'll see in just a minute an example of that. We also know that Luke was a physician. doctor, which means he was a man of reason, and he was a man who believed in research and finding the facts, the evidence to support his case. Even in the first century, doctors were scientific in their pursuit of truth. The evidence for some of these points is found in the New Testament itself, not in the writings of Luke, but in other people's writings like Paul, who mentioned Luke with some regularity. So the first reading today is from Colossians chapter 4. Colossians 4, verses 10 to 14. If you're looking at your study guides, I'm not going to read verses 7, 8, and 9. I'm going to start in verse 10. If you're opening your Bibles, that's great too. Extra credit for people that open their own Bibles, or you can use the, the, the Bible that we give you there to find Colossians. Chapter 4, verse 10 to 14. My fellow prisoner, this is Paul writing to the Colossians. For reference, it's about the year 60 A.D. Okay. Picture that in your head. My fellow prisoner, so he's in prison. Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Paul told the Colossians. Jesus, now heads up, different Jesus. All right, not the Jesus. This is different Jesus. Jesus, who is called justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have provided a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and who is a servant of Christ Jesus, sends his greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. And here we go. Our dear friend, Luke, the doctor. In Greek, it's actually uh, verbatim, the beloved physician, Luke. Okay, the beloved physician, Luke. And Demas, who was another companion of Paul's, send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. This woman hosted a house church, Nympha. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. So Paul would write his letters through a scribe, but at the end, he would often take the pen and write in his own handwriting. This is me, this is me writing here, and he would sign it. Grace uh, be with you, he wrote. Remember, that's important. Remember my chains. Grace be with you, he wrote. So Luke stuck, stuck with Paul through it all, stuck with Paul when no one else did, actually. We have further evidence of this as Paul lived out his final days in that Mamertine prison. He wrote his final letters. This was a little bit after the Colossians. This is like mid 60s AD, when Paul wrote letters like 2 Timothy, where he included these instructions. 2 Timothy verse uh, chapter four, verses nine to 13. Do your best to come quickly. For Demas, the guy that was a companion in the other reading, now he's not so much. Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. and He's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. And Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Only Luke was with Paul to the end. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak. This is so human. I love this. I love these little details. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. It's cold and damp in this cell. In other words, bring the cloak and my scrolls, my scriptures, and especially the parchments. The parchments, uh, it was a word, membrane, something like that, membrane, but it was, it was, It was a notebook, basically, where you could just on the fly be writing notes. He said, bring me my notebooks. If I was in prison in my last days, that's what I would ask for. Anybody who knows me knows how much I love my notebooks. (laughs) Bring me my notebooks. I won't feel so lonely. So we get a glimpse here, not just of the Apostle Paul, but the man who stood by his side, Luke. It's a beautiful, a beautiful glimpse of how loyal he was. Now, finally, and most importantly, I think, for today's purposes, as we sort of set the table today for this long series, Luke was, and continues to be, really, a renowned historian. Like scripture and faith claims aside, Luke is appreciated and lauded to this day as a historical uh, uh, genius, giant, really, of the first century Roman Empire. Some people, including non Christian historians, have gone so far as to say that Luke is the greatest first century Roman historian that we have. Because there aren't many Roman historians and their works that have survived to this day. A lot were destroyed, I presume. And the ones that we do lean on oftentimes come from the second or third or fourth centuries, telling us events that happened in the first century. Luke, mid first century, wrote down facts, volumes and volumes of historical facts. Real things, people, and places that really could be verified. And he did so with such precision that Christians and non-Christians alike have for centuries been amazed by his accuracy. And this is why, he tells us why he's so accurate in his opening passage. So the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke are stunning in the way that they stand out among the Gospels. This is why we're studying Luke. Matthew was written for a very Jewish audience. That's why Matthew's gospel begins not with, in those days in Bethlehem, Mary was visited by an angel. That's that's later in Luke, actually. Matthew begins with a Jewish family tree, a Jewish genealogy to show how Jewish this Jesus was. Mark is really Peter's gospel. Mark was Peter's scribe, and Peter wrote the gospel through Mark. And so just in Peter fashion, it doesn't even talk about the birth. Peter's like, yada, yada, yada to the birth. And he's like, so there was this guy named John the Baptist. He was baptizing people. Just like exactly what you would expect from Peter. There's no birth story in Mark's gospel. John is sort of a poet, a spiritualist, right? He's like writing at the end of his life, decades after the events, And he's like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. It's like very poetic and beautiful in his own style. But Luke comes at it this way. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Luke addressed his gospel and the book called Acts to this same Theophilus. Theophilus is a name that means beloved of God. and um, funny story, if you haven't been around that long, you may not know, eight years ago this month, we had not started worshiping yet. We had not opened. We didn't have a name yet, and our launch team was deciding what we should call this new faith community of ours. And because we belonged at that point to a church named St. Luke's, and St. Luke, the guy, wrote his letters to a Theophilus, we thought, how cool would it be if we named our community Theophilus Church? Whew. We dodged a bullet on that one. Because how many of you would be a part of this church today if somebody one day invited you to Theophilus Church? Would you be, how many? Okay, fewer people than were soccer fans, all right? It's not, not a great, not a great name, bad name. You might, you might even say it's Theophilus name. I worked hard on that one. Anyway, all right, so <laughs> who was this Theophilus character? Uh, scholars have debated this for centuries, actually. and The debate goes on today. No one's really sure whether Theophilus was a historical figure, an individual, or whether this stood for a community of beloved of God people, right, like Christians. Maybe it stood for the church. Well, there's been debate, but I think the evidence leans heavily toward Theophilus being an individual because... The work I did to, to study this this week showed that that qualifier, most excellent, is never used for any community in the Roman literature that we have. It's never used as a qualifier for a, a community of people, a group of people, in any Roman uh, correspondence from that era. It's always used to identify a, a dignitary, a political or religious dignitary or VIP. So it's more, way more likely that Theophilus was a well-to-do, wealthy benefactor of Luke's work. He underwrote, he was a Christian, by the by, the wording, it looks like he was a Christian, who underwrote Luke's research. He just wanted to be sure. He wanted to be certain and sent Luke out as the scientist that he was to go and find out reasons why we can be certain. Now, one thing we can be certain of about Luke is just his prowess. His prowess as a As a historian, I'm going to give you some idea of why he has become so respected as a historian by Christians and non Christians alike, and why some even say he's the greatest, right, in the first century. It's because of facts like this. So Luke contains, uh, in Luke and Acts, 114 references by name of towns, villages, provinces, islands, seas lakes, and other identifiable historical places, and every time he names one of these places or landmarks, he properly locates them on the map. Keep in mind, he did this without the benefit of Google Maps or even an atlas or anything, and so a lot of these towns were not big cities. They were tiny villages that no one would ever have heard of unless you did your homework, and so it does seem as though Luke did his due diligence, to say the least. Not only this, 25 political, religious, and social events that were very specific to the times and places in which they occurred were listed by Luke in his two books. All of them were accurately described, both in terms of when they occurred and where and what they celebrated. Uh, Historical crises that he points to, such as the famine in Judea in Acts chapter 11, or the, the, the... uh, sequestration or the, the removal, let's say, the expulsion of the, of the Jews from, from Rome, which he mentions in Acts 18. These are historical events that are elsewhere attested to in non-biblical sources. So it's not like biased sources that affirm Luke. Non-biblical historical sources from the day affirm Luke's attestations as well. And finally, this is, I think most importantly, 117 contemporary people named by name. Right? He mentions them by name as a way of saying, if you don't believe me, go and ask them. Uh, they contributed to this story, or they were a part of this story. If you don't believe me, go ask so-and-so by name. 117 living people, many of them were well-known historical figures that Luke attested to. Now, here's the deal. Given the sheer number of these facts and figures that Luke lays down without the benefit of Google Maps or Wikipedia or whatever we, we lean on today, Google even, like, search it up, Right? Without the benefit of any of those tools, you would expect that a man like Luke, living in a time like he did, would get at least one or two things wrong. But after two millennia of his writings being heavily scrutinized by especially secular, by secular voices and historians, there has not been a single historical fact that Luke laid down that has been disproven. Not one. This is borderline miraculous that this would happen with a source from the ancient world. One of the reasons he's called the greatest first century Roman historian is because the other guys that we have from the first century got a few things wrong here and there. Josephus, for example, got a few things wrong historically. Tacitus, Suetonius, they got a few things wrong. Luke, in every detail that he mentioned, got them right, which only proves that he meant business, that he was a serious man. Maybe we should take him seriously. So in the uh, late 1800s, there was a Scottish archaeologist who was, some have said he was an atheist. I could not find evidence that he was an atheist before he studied Luke. He was at least an agnostic, however, and he was a very well-respected professor at Oxford University and Aberdeen Aberdeen University. He was a recipient of several honorary doctorates and honorary degrees and and professorships and fellowships and all that stuff, he was, um, he was awarded with all kinds of uh, different uh, British awards for scientists from the Royal Geographic Society, founding member of the British Academy. He was knighted as Sir William Ramsey in the year 1906. Pretty big deal, this guy. Well, at one point in his adulthood, in his career, he decided to spend a few years discrediting the New Testament This was after the Enlightenment. This was very in vogue. And if you're going to discredit the New Testament, Luke's a good place to start because of the 28% thing and because of how many facts and figures Luke lifts up. There's more of these facts and figures in Luke and Acts than the rest of the New Testament combined. So why not go after Luke? So Ramsey traveled to Asia Minor, where Luke was from and where he traveled around, present-day Turkey, to discredit Luke's claims about people and places and events and things like that. And this is what he came back saying, however, after several years of study in archaeology and digs in, uh, in the region. He said, you may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians, and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. Christianity did not originate in a lie, and we can and ought to demonstrate this as well as believe it. Further study, this is still Ramsey, further study showed the book, Luke, could bear the most minute scrutiny as an authority of the facts of the Aegean world, and that it was written with such judgment, skill, art, and perception of truth as to be a model of historical statement. How many of us in college, especially in young adulthood, Many of us on Reddit and Twitter and conversations and coffee shops have been led to believe the Bible is not worthy of our attention, much less our faith. Sir William Ramsay went to Asia Minor as a skeptic and an agnostic about the Bible and Christianity, and he came back a believer and a Christian. He lived the rest of his days following Jesus. Now, the narrative about Christianity in much of the world today is that it's nice. Like a lot of religions, it's nice. If that's what you believe and it makes you a better person, it's nice. Go do it. Many secular people still lift up and and admire the ideals of Christianity. It's nice. But is it true? It's nice to love your neighbor, but did Jesus really do all the things Christians say he did? And the implication being, of course, well, Jesus, whether he really existed or not, it didn't, didn't really matter because in the aftermath of whatever happened, it's clear what really took place. His followers didn't want to let him go, and so they took their man and made him into a myth. They took his legacy and shaped it into a legend. They melted down their ideas of him, and they created a God of their own making, an idol, if you will. And that's what Christianity has been all about ever since. That sort of myth-making, it happens all the time. Look at other movements, other religions, other spiritual groups. It always happens this way. People in the aftermath of this man or person they looked up to, they always try to keep them alive by making a religion around them, building a myth, passing it on to future generations. It happens all the time, right? But the beauty and power of Luke is that he demonstrates that while that does, in fact, it is a real phenomenon in human history, myth-making, legend-shaping, all of that is real, but it's never happened like this. Myths and legends take time. What has to happen, as any honest historian will tell you, is that the original generation that witnessed the real events have to all die out before the new narratives can live and spread. Well, here we have a witness who bears witness to dozens or hundreds of other witnesses who were still alive when he wrote this down, writing history in real time while the eyewitnesses were still alive. This is not how myth-making works. In fact, there has never been a myth or legend take root in a way that uh, Luke and the other Christians uh, clung to their faith in Jesus. So if you're going to really honestly wrestle with Christianity, let's wrestle with Luke, the careful historian, the beloved physician, the author of one-fourth of the New Testament. Let's honestly wrestle with him. And let's wrestle with our own assumptions too. And oftentimes I'll hear doubters say, well, have you ever really questioned your faith? And I'll ask you, and Luke will challenge you with the question, have you ever really questioned your doubts? And your reasons for casting the Bible aside, for casting the Christian truth claims aside. And I know a lot of us were raised with such a deep hermeneutic of suspicion. Anytime someone tells us what we should believe, we instantly suspect they're out to do something because people cannot be trusted. People can't be trusted. And so you can't trust people. Why would you trust the things they tell you? You know who else believed that people should not instantly be trusted? Luke, that's why he talked to dozens or hundreds of eyewitnesses. If he trusted people, he would have stopped at two or three but he made sure to get it right. So your suspicions are not entirely off base, but you also must be willing to challenge those assumptions. Now, maybe you've been led to believe you can't really be certain about anything, not just people. You can't be certain about anything because what do we know? And so we're all just standing on the shifting sands of reality that's not even real, and just trying to get through the misery of existence, holding on to some kind of superficial hope. We think that's what religion is. I understand how people get to that place. I understand you've been told it's impossible to be certain about history, because history is always written by who? The winner. This history was written in the Mamertine prison. It was written by people who were being hunted, dragged through the streets, and fed to the lions. They were anything but winners. They recorded this history because they believed in what they had seen, and they believed it was worth living for, and they believed it was worth dying for. Many of you have probably been told you, or you've come to believe you can't trust men like me, preachers, leaders, priests, or politicians. I want to tell you today, you're absolutely right. (laughs) And the Bible has never been one to vouch for the integrity of men like me. Religious leaders are the most frequently condemned Group throughout the scriptures, and Luke was no different. He didn't lift up the religious and powerful men of his day, he just lifted up one man. He lifted up Jesus. And Luke and the other believers in the first generation of Christianity believed there was one man about whom we could be certain, and one idea on which we can stand and build our lives. The man is Jesus, and the idea is his gospel. The gospel. Jesus, which says we're all screw-ups and sinners, we're all a mess, incapable of saving ourselves, and because God is love, he saw us in our shame, trying and failing to save ourselves, and he came down from heaven and saved us himself. Pouring out his love for all the world in the form of his blood at the cross to redeem us, reclaim us from our shame and our sin and death and hell, and give us a solid foundation on which we can stand and be certain. If you're someone who's felt like you were standing on shaky ground, not really sure you can be ever certain about anything, always suspicious and doubtful and miserable, I want you to keep just a little bit of a door open throughout the next 22 weeks because I believe this journey we're about to go on together has the power to change your heart, to change your mind, to change our lives. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, we thank you for your servant, Luke, for his determination. I don't even know what it must have taken from him and what he must have given up to follow Paul around and to be imprisoned and to write on parchment with quills and to carefully... Uh, get every detail right and preserve it and pass it along so that we could sit here in Houston, Texas in 2022 and study it. Lord, uh, we pray for openness of mind and heart, especially for those of us who struggle with deep doubts about religion and about Christianity in particular. Lord, we pray that you uh, you would give us courage to leave just the door cracked a little bit, just the door of our hearts, just a little bit open, So that over the next uh, 22 or so weeks together, we might see you for who you really are. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.